appropriate that in this time when there's a lot of concern about health, that we find our Lord Jesus Christ uh, in the middle of his healing ministry. He spent a lot of time helping people with their health. And um, here's, a story, here's one of the stories. He spent a lot of time getting in trouble for it, too, because he would do it even on the Sabbath, which was against the rules. So here we have from the Gospel of John one of the longest of the healing stories of Jesus. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night comes when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And as he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the man's eyes with the clay, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him as before as a beggar said, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He said, I am the man. They said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. The Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was a division among them. So they again said to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know this is our son, and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. May the Lord bless to our hearts and our minds this reading of his word. One of the interesting things about the field of psychology are the different types of categorizations that they have come up to try to describe human personality, the taxonomy of a human personality, so to speak. And uh, although people are, are way too complex to ever be 
figured out in one simple little thing. It's interesting to see the different takes that different fields of psychology have taken over the years to explain human personality. For example, one of the first ones was a guy named Alfred Adler, who was a psychiatrist in Vienna right around the time of Freud and Jung, an early uh, guy, and he had a theory of the family constellation. He believed that one of the things that really affects our personality as adults is the birth order that we have in our family. He noticed that, there were, that firstborn kids have some common characteristics, and the baby of the family has some common characteristics, and middle kids have some common characteristics. So his theory was that the order that we are born in, our place in the family constellation, has a lot to do with our personality. And then, of course, Carl Jung developed a theory. He had different psychological types. He noticed that there are some people who, uh, they get their energy from being around other people. At the end of a long week, on Friday night, they seek out a party. There are other people who get their energy by being alone, by being quiet, and that restores them. And, and he noticed that some people, when the phone rings, they lunge for it. Other people hope somebody else will get it. You know, uh, the first group of people he called extroverts, and the second group he called introverts. Another way of looking at it is Freud's way. Freud, of course, believed that human personality was functioned, was shaped largely by the first two years of our life. That the experiences we have as an infant and a, and a young, young child, the first two years, are formative to the personality. He noticed that there are some people that are very structured and organized and methodical, whereas there are other people who are messy and, and, and uh, disorganized and all those kind of things. And he surmised that this had to do with their early toilet training. That the organized people must have had a very strict toilet training, and the disorganized people would have a lax toilet training. The first group he called anal retentive, and the second group he called anal explosive. I'm in that group. I wish you to come up with a better name for that, um, that group. You may want to continue this conversation in the courtyard afterwards, uh, <laughs> introducing yourself by your Freudian type. All of these taxonomies, all of these characterizations are an attempt to try to understand human behavior and nature. I want to propose another one that uh, I've noticed in this world that we see at work actually today in the text. I believe there are people that are under-religious. There are people that are overly religious. And there are people that are appropriately religious. Let's consider the under-religious people. Well, they're not here. <laughs> you drove past them on your way here. They're down at Pete's reading the New York Times. There are a group of people in the world who cannot see or refuse to admit that there is a spiritual dimension to this world. Philosophically, these people are often called materialists or logical positivists. They refuse to believe in anything that cannot be logically or scientifically proven. It's difficult to have a meaningful discussion between a religious and an under-religious person 
because the spiritual person uh, cannot provide the evidence that the other person requires to believe. The, the person who is under religious is always looking for empirical verification. Sort of like Woody Allen, who said, I would believe in God if he would just give me a sign, like a large deposit in my name in a Swiss bank. In the scripture reading that we just read, the under-religious are ironically played by the Pharisees. They see the miracle, and they refuse to believe. They cannot believe, because it happens on the Sabbath. They don't believe, you know, they're, they're, they start a search, doing research, talking to the guy's parents, interviewing the man twice himself. They refuse to believe the miracle that happened right in front of their eyes. They're looking for a sign. Nothing is enough. They want the verification. There are many people like that, and unfortunately, they miss out on the whole wonder of the spiritual world that is out there. Emily Dickinson wrote a short poem about the Old Testament story of Moses and the burning bush. Remember, God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, and Moses took off his shoes there. She wrote this, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest stand round and pick blackberries. Only he who sees takes off his shoes. I saw a painting once of this Bible story. And it was interesting. It was an abstract painting. It was called The Burning Bush. And there were these big green blobs all over the canvas. Big green blobs. And down in one corner, there was a small red blob. That was the burning bush. And the artist's idea was that the burning bush wasn't necessarily an in-your-face kind of a thing, something that was evident and obvious. It, was, it would have been possible to miss it if you hadn't known where to look or if you weren't open to the concept of that. The burning bush all around us. That's why there's a Jewish saying that says, why of all things did God choose the humble thorn bush as the place from which to speak with Moses? And the answer is to teach you that there is no place on earth bereft of the divine presence, not even a thorn bush. There's a wonderful parable, an allegory that's been written about the presence of God that is unseen. It's called The Mice in the Piano. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a family of mice that lived in a large piano. They loved their piano world and the music that often came to them, filling all the dark spaces with sound and harmony. At first, the mice were impressed by it. They drew comfort and wonder from the thought that there was someone who made the music. Although this someone was invisible to them, he felt close to them. They loved to think about the unseen player who they could not see. Then one day, a daring mouse climbed up part of the piano and returned in a very thoughtful mood. He'd made a discovery which revealed how the music was made. Wires were the secret. He found tightly stretched wires of graduated lengths, which trembled and vibrated. Now the mice had to revise all their old beliefs. Only the most conservative mice could believe any longer in the unseen player. Later, another mouse explorer 
returned from an expedition with yet another discovery about the origins of the music. Hammers were the true secret. There were dozens of hammers that danced and leaped upon the wires. This was a more complicated theory, but it all went to show that they lived in a purely mechanical universe. The unseen player came to be thought of as a myth. Meanwhile, the unseen player continued to play. Ever since the Enlightenment and the beginning of the scientific revolution, as we've discovered more about the mechanics of the world, how the world works, quantum physics, and those kind of things, there has been a temptation to see that as incompatible with the idea of God. And there are many people who have substituted the idea of God and taken over the idea of pure science. But there are many people who believe in both. You, you don't have to give up the idea of God to believe in the truth of science. There are many that still choose to believe in the unseen player. Then the other type of people uh, in this story are the overly religious. They're played by the Christians, as they usually are. The disciples. They bring a theological baggage to this story. They bring a, a whole mindset that is just wrong. It's just warped. They, their question, when they come across a guy who's blind... The question on their minds is, who sinned that this guy should be born blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? What was it that caused him to be born blind? And, and so when you start off with a bad question, you're going to get a bad answer. And Jesus says, nobody sinned. It just happened. Things in life happen. Bad things happen to people. That are, not everything is the result of the will of God or God's decision or somebody's choice. There's a randomness in the universe that exists that we need to acknowledge to be healthy about life. And so he, he starts off, he says, uh, so nobody sinned, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to make something good out of this. And then he goes and, and, and gives him his sight back. So he takes the bad thing that just happened and he makes something good at it. The overly religious people attribute more to God and religion than is necessary or that God claims for himself. They project unto God their own ideas and successes or failures. I wonder how many people over the years have been turned off to religion because of overly, overly religious people. Remember the character on Saturday Night Live, the church lady? Remember the church lady? The reason the church lady was funny is there are a lot of church ladies. There's a lot of people out there that are like that. And it's sad. And who knows how many people have been turned off by that, by that sort of thing, that sort of religion. I had a, a member of my church in Miami who used to tell me that the most amazing thing about her spiritual life was that whenever she went to South Beach, which is Miami Beach, it's a crowded part just like North Beach in San Francisco, where there's never any parking. She said, every time I go there, I pray to God and God gives me a free parking space. I said, well, I don't get one. He says, well, you're not praying enough for it. Her baggage, her, her religion had to do with God finding parking spaces for her. There are people who claim way more for God than God ever promises to do for himself. I, uh, I had a good job for a few years. I was the associate editor of a magazine called The Wittenberg Door. It was pretty much the only Christian humor magazine in the world. 
And um, we, uh, every year we gave an award called Theologian of the Year. And we gave it to the worst thing written about God. The, 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 the wor- it was a tongue-in-cheek thing. It was like the worst thing that we could find in a book that year, we gave the Theologian of the Year. And this year, we gave it to Tammy Faye Baker. Um, you know, Jim and Tammy Faye, they had a TV show, a religious TV show, and they, uh, they wrote all these things. She wrote a biography called I Gotta Be Me. And um, in it, she talks about the death of her little chihuahua dog, Chi-Chi. And I'm going to read to you from her biography. Jim came in gently and said, Tammy, Chi-Chi is dead. I thought my world had come to an end because that was the first time death had ever entered into me. I've never had anyone die that I loved so much before. I wanted to run out in the street and scream. As I started to run out the door, the Holy Spirit stopped me right in my tracks. And I stood in the kitchen and I couldn't move. I wasn't thinking about God, only about why was Chi-Chi dead? The Holy Spirit began to speak through me in an unknown tongue. I couldn't stop. It helped to keep me from falling apart. God is so good. He is there even when we aren't aware of him. At the very moment, a real estate agent wanted to show our house to someone. Jim handed Chi-Chi to him and said, Would you dispose of Chi-Chi for us? I'm not making this up. (laughs) Jim put his arms around me. And I cried and cried. I said, Jim, have them keep Chi-Chi for a couple of days. Please don't let them bury him right away because I know God can raise things from the dead. Please don't let them bury Chi-Chi. I prayed and prayed and prayed. Oh, Jesus, please raise Chi-Chi from the dead. I expected Jim to bring Chi-Chi home any minute, and I knew God could do it, and Chi-Chi would be all right again. I expected to open the door, and there would be Chi-Chi as usual. But then I remembered. The fact is that Chi-Chi was a naughty little dog. (laughs) I loved him so much, but there were times I wanted to give him away because he wet on our drapes, especially when he'd get mad at us. He'd chew on everything. We never knew what he would tear up next. But you see, God knew how to take care of Chi-Chi for me. God knew that if he took him, that would be the end of the wedding all over the room. What a shift from God as the raiser of the dead dogs to God the executioner of animals. That is a huge, massive shift in this world. Bad theology has consequences. Bad theology causes people to do bad things and to think bad things about God. That's why appropriate theology is important. You know, there was a, there was a theological belief in our country in the 19th century that white Americans, the immigrants from white countries, should have the country all the way from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from sea to shining sea. We were, the, we were to be the masters of this continent here. And it didn't matter how many Mexican people or Native American people we had to kill to make sure that we were in control of our manifest destiny. Bad theology has consequences. And then finally, there are the appropriately religious. And by that, I don't mean moderate. I'm not talking about that. Jesus actually warned against that. He said, I wish you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm, and I just want to spit you out of my mouth. I'm not talking about being moderate, because passion is an important part of our faith. 
But Jesus was a radical and many Christians want to be moderates. But appropriate religion is that which focuses on that which is important. And, and the best way to do that that I know of is go back to Jesus and say, what did Jesus focus on in his ministry? Feeding people, healing people, teaching people, making them better. That's what appropriate religion is. That's our job in, in our day and time, is to do the kind of things that Jesus would do if Jesus was here today. So that tutoring in the schools in Oakland, or feeding people at the homeless shelter in Oakland, or, or any of the ministries that we have, visiting sick people, all of that is to the appropriate religion of carrying on what Jesus did. And it's so easy for religions to get sidetracked onto other things, small little things. My very first church that I served I, when I was in seminary, I, I was in Concord. I lived in Berkeley, went to seminary, but I drove out to Concord and I was the youth minister at a little small church there called First Christian Church. And in Concord at that time, there was a big Baptist church and the Baptist church was fixated on the presence of an X-rated theater in Concord. They put all their energy into getting rid of this X-rated theater. They had pickets outside. They did everything that they could to try to get... They finally realized or thought that the best thing they could do would be to buy it so they could close it down. So they raised money and they bought the X-rated theater, but they got some very bad legal advice because they found out after they bought it that the guy who was running it had an ironclad lease. So they became the only Baptist church to own, to own their own X-rated theater. It hit the Contra Costa Times. Baptist church owns X-rated theater. It's so easy to, to, to find the, the small, the thing that's not important and to, and, to, and to siphon off our energy under those kind of things. What does really important religion look like? Let's go back to Jesus and see what those are. The other thing about appropriate religion is we don't miss the joy. You know what's sad about this story? Both the under and the over religious people, they didn't get to experience the joy of what happened. This blind guy can now see. This is a beautiful, wonderful moment in history. And they don't, some are denying it. Some are have weird theology about it. Everybody misses the joy except for the appropriate religious. They can focus on what's really, really important here. Jesus came for us to have that kind of life. He said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And then I think the last thing about appropriate religion is we see ourselves in, in a partnership with God. We see that it's not all up to God and it's not all up to us, that we work together with God in a partnership. As it says in, in the prayer, you know, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we work with God to try to be a partner, to make earth as much like heaven as we possibly can. We're in it together. We do what we can. I love the old Russian proverb that says, pray to God, but keep rowing to shore. Do both. Pray to God, but keep rowing to shore. Amen.